from my beginning here at Christ Church, we established the discipline of building our worship life around the traditional church year patterned on the life and times of Jesus. The assigned Sunday readings follow a three-year cycle, which means that, with some exceptions, I don't choose the scriptures that are read most Sundays. For the most part, we take it as it comes, as we plan worship. This means that over three years, the congregation, if they are regular attenders, is exposed to quite a lot of the Bible, as opposed to a collection of my favorite passages. And honestly, that's a principal reason we do it, to make our worship less about the leaders and more about the astonishingly rich and wise Christian tradition. So for instance, you won't find what we heard from Luke today being read from the pulpit of televised megachurches more invested in topics like three steps to greater happiness or God's five-point plan for your financial prosperity or other motivational messages appealing to consumerist sensibilities. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, greater happiness or financial prosperity. It's just that you won't find those topics on Jesus' preaching roster. There's a vast difference between what we want and what we need. And addressing this reality is a very, very tricky business in a market-driven religious economy because that's what we have. Consumers go where they can get what they want. For instance, I bet Love Your Enemies ranks right up there as one of your least favorite teachings and most ignored. Who in their right mind thinks that's a true goal or even desirable, let alone possible? Wouldn't you rather honestly hate the bastards and seek revenge? <laughs> Few people go to church on a Sunday hoping their behavior patterns and beliefs are challenged these days. They'd much rather have their point of view affirmed and celebrated, even revved into an inspiring tribal excitement the way sports fans root for the winning team. We come to hear what we hope to hear. I mean, that's right, isn't it? <laughs> Funny thing, though, our readings today happen to serendipitously coincide with the Special General Conference of the United Methodist Church meeting in St. Louis to determine the future of our denomination. That meeting is all about sex and sexuality. That's its singular focus. Who's legit and who isn't? Who's part of the team and who isn't? And I can tell you that feelings are running hot. One leading pastor characterized our moment this way. 
We are in a cage match. Do you know what a cage match is? You all know what a cage match You've seen it? Where two warriors are in an enclosed mesh cage, battling it out. This is how he likened it. We're in a cage match. The loser can't get up off the mat. The winner is beaten up, bloodied, and battered. Such is the state of affairs among the Methodist Christians. Suppose disciples of Christ who said things like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, forgive and you will be forgiven. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You know, honestly, from where I stand, I tell you this is a hard word to hear today. Hard because I'd rather not hear it, and quite frankly, I want to ignore it. But now, given other things Jesus lived and taught, I know he doesn't mean for us to passively give up our commitment to justice and righteousness. I know this because of how his own life tracked. How he confronted, sometimes angrily, and always relentlessly, the injustices and prejudices of his day. All of which led him where? To the cross. When he was heard to say paradoxically and mysteriously, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Willing to die for the sake of love, even his enemies were meant to be included. Do to others as you would have them do to you. What do you think? Is that a child's rhyme or a way of life? As for me, it lies behind and beneath all that Jesus lived and taught and sets a very high bar for the kind of hospitality we should offer as a people of God. Who should be excluded? Who should not be treated as I would be treated? Day in and day out, it's a hard standard, though, isn't it? Consider your own enemy list. You've got them. In a few minutes, I'll warn you, in a few minutes, you're going to be asked to pray for them. Earlier, we heard how Joseph forgave his brothers who years prior had sold him into slavery because they hated his arrogance and his place as his father's favorite. That's the backstory. Now, years later, in a time of famine, they've come to Egypt as refugees. Joseph has become Pharaoh's second in command with great power to exact revenge on his brothers. That would have been the normal tracking on this, right? That's how the movies and other entertainments we watch solve the riddle of the victim who comes into power themselves to exact revenge. And honestly, who could blame him? Why not do to his brothers as they had done to him? That's what the brothers feared when they learned the identity of this overlord. But Joseph did the unexpected thing, the larger thing, the 
forgiveness thing. And God's purposes were advanced as a result. Several years ago, I interviewed a number of people for my dissertation on the intersections between forgiveness and leadership. Among them was Anne Curry, who was then co-anchor of the NBC Today show. A number of people I had asked to have this conversation turned me down. She was uncertain at first, but after a while, relented, and these were on-the-record conversations. We had a rich, wide-ranging chat on the meanings of forgiveness and how it played out in her life and work. And then towards the end of our time, as a kind of culminating exclamation point as she got to thinking about all of this, she recalled the story of a young African woman she encountered while on a journalism assignment. This is her verbatim. Sarah was 17 when she was kidnapped by the men who had just killed her parents. Let me repeat that opening sentence. Sarah was 17 when she was kidnapped by the men who had just killed her parents. They took her and chained her to a tree, and they kept her there. Then she became their sex slave. And finally, when they had no more use for her because her legs wouldn't work anymore, they left her for dead because she was not worth anything. Eventually, she was discovered chained to the tree. Some men came from the village and they rescued her and carried her to the hospital. When I met her, she was about to undergo surgery because she had been so broken she could no longer go to the bathroom normally. She was now 18, beautiful, shivering under a blanket, when she saw me, invited me to see her, and mute, both of us, both of us mute. I saw her shivering and I grabbed her hand. It was all I could do because it was time for the surgery to begin. When I came back the next day, she told me what had happened to her, and I said, do you want revenge against these men who did this to you? And after a moment, she said, no, all I want is to rise from this bed, thank the people who rescued me, perhaps feel a mother's love again, and work for God. Ann Curry paused for a moment here. I think she was thinking aloud with me through this whole process because she'd never had a conversation about forgiveness before, one-on-one. -on -one. And in a quiet, thoughtful voice, then said, forgiveness does not mean that you, are, that you easily come to forgiving everything that happens to you or to others. It's more like a path. In Sarah's case, it was unforgivable until she forgave. 
It was absolutely unforgivable what happened to her. And yet she forgave. That's the lesson, I think. That is the beauty and the glory of what is possible in our kind. End quote. Now, this forgiveness does not, should not preclude justice, that is, bringing perpetrators of terrible atrocities to trial and judgment for crimes. Forgiveness has a different focus. It's an agenda concerning the future. Forgiveness is a profoundly personal activity, touching the deepest aspects of human experience and our relatedness to others. It has an honored place in defining what it means to be human. I know from many, many conversations that most people have a a lot of difficulty becoming deeply reflective about what forgiveness actually is and how it is situated in their lived experience. To look at it full on is to look into a mirror of one's own soul and essential nature. In this sense, it is an act of bravery. Initially, it's an act of laying down one's arms, but not passively, not by relinquishing a fierce commitment to justice and love. Forgiveness is a choice about one's relationship to the future and who one wishes to become. And this is not done in resignation or out of weakness, but instead as an explicit attempt at creating something different than what has been. We see this explicitly in the story of Joseph. If Joseph had taken his opportunity and turned it into revenge, the future was completely shut down and God's purposes would have been thwarted. Because God is all about opening up the future for limitless possibilities and forgiveness was the doorway. And we see this in the life and death of Jesus too. This call to love and to forgive, to do to others as we would like to have done to us, is all about the future, all about the future, all about the future. It's future-oriented. It is not about healing the past. That cannot be accomplished. This is a very, very common misunderstanding for people when they begin to approach the topic of forgiveness because they mistakenly assume the job is to repair the past, which is impossible. That is an impossible task. That is not what forgiveness is about. The past is done. It's over. You can't return to it. Boy, this is hard for us to get into our heads, and it's what keeps us trapped in the past, in relentless cycles of despair and anger. Forgiveness is all about what is possible ahead. Creating something new, something restored, something reconciled. Something better. You know, shortly we'll pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And then we'll pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. Because 
That is the doorway to ushering in the kingdom of God on earth. That's the equation, friends. We're invited to be God's partners, bringing forth the inbreaking kingdom. That's the invitation Jesus extends to his followers as he admonishes them to expand the range of their love. Expand the range of your love. Break out of the artificial bonds you've placed around it. And by the way, that is why I am so committed to renewing our church to include all persons equally. You cannot break the logic of this in my mind. You know, the spirit will inevitably disrupt the status quo because it is in the business of bringing forth the new thing. That's the business of the spirit. The different thing, the love and forgiveness thing that opens the door into the hopeful future.